Recommender systems are, in my mind, the most complex machine learning problem out there. Recommender systems, like when we say, you know, I'm building a recommender system or here's the recommender system, generally we're talking about the model, like the ranking model. That's like an engine, but not a car, right? Like it's a part of a broader system. And I think we've, we've kind of done a disservice in naming that a recommender system because it's really a recommender model. The context of like what I want to watch when I turn on Netflix at night, that can change dramatically. Like you're literally trying to model a human's preference and you, you know, the number of confounding variables in that is like astronomical. Deep learning is very hard to do correctly. I think deep learning is the future. It's, it's very hard right now, right, to do deep learning, but that's a big part of what my team's working on at, at Merlin is, you know, we're, we're trying to make recommender systems easier to build and make recommender systems easier to deploy into production. And that's, that's not just deep learning. Welcome to this second episode of Rexperts, Recommender Systems Experts. This time I'm welcoming and very excited to be joined by Even Aldrich, who is a senior manager with NVIDIA and is joining me nine hours apart from Canada, actually from Vancouver, where for those that are aware of it, the Rexus took place in 2018, quite some time ago, but nice place. Uh, to have a conference there. Hello, Even. Nice to have you on board. Great to be here, Marcel, and, and honored, really, to be you know, especially after after Kim took the the first slot to to be to be your second guest is a is a huge honor. And it's funny you mentioned the the Vancouver Rexus. That was really my introduction to the Rexus community and and a chance to to make connections. And it was it was that moment of finding your tribe, really, of like you know being in amongst hundreds of people who were so deep into recommenders and embedding spaces and that mental model it just it it i mean it launched my career really it like put, put me into the the role at nvidia through some tweets that my boss caught but that sort of he ended up running into and yeah it's uh it's a pleasure to be here Cool. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I'm really grateful that you directly said yes. It's really nice feedback for me to see people that are joining this really early stage show. Actually, um, the Rexus 2018 in Vancouver was also, I guess, the first time that we met each other because this was still the time where you have been with Realtor, I guess. Yeah. So I saw your presentation over there and coming from industry and also then this year in 2021 um, becoming also an industry co-chair with the conference and involving much more with the community. So it's very interesting. Um, can you give us just a picture? How did you join the field? I saw that you have a PhD in electrical engineering and computer engineering from the University of British Columbia. But of course, from there to Rexus, uh, it must have been quite a path. It, it's a bit of a gap. I think I came to Rexus the way a lot of people come to it, which is sort of like being in the right place at the right time. Um, I did a PhD. So first I did a master's in programmable logic. So like hardware design and, and have a deep appreciation for that aspect. Um, I did a PhD in computer vision and was you know interested in the computer vision side. This is pre-deep learning. I'm dating myself a little bit here, but, <laughs> but pre-deep learning computer vision is very different from today's computer vision. Um, much more about feature engineering and, and, and the other aspects there. Uh, and it was sort of through that I was teaching and uh, like doing sessional teaching and, and running some courses at UBC and some interactive art courses at Emily Carr, the local university as well. Um, 
And uh, yeah, and, and an opening came up at a company called Plenty of Fish. They're mm -hmm. one of the biggest online dating sites in the world. Um, okay. And I started there initially to do some computer vision work. I think the idea was, you know, detecting photos that are inappropriate was uh, <laughs> was the, the, the starting point. But it very quickly became clear that there was, you know, the recommender system problem there was, you know, was the core part of the business. And it had been run by the, you know, the, the founder for a very long time. But he was very involved in scaling up the mobile side of things and, and growing the business there. And, and there was opportunities to really dig into some technologies. And, and this, the, you know, the solutions there were, were pretty old. Um, and we started getting into some interesting, interesting methods. Nothing too advanced, really. But I think you know, it, it, was, it was a very interesting exploration in an interesting space that's sort of person to person so that the users and the items are the same mm -hmm. in the same space, right? Like they, they are the same thing. Um, but the the interactions are you know, and it made for a very very interesting Rexus problem. And then you know when it came to Realtor, it was kind of the same um, same transition. You know, I, I I left Plenty of Fish after they were sold. Um, to you know, we we sold to uh, the Match Group, um, mm -hmm. and I and I took a break for a couple of months. And I really you know I learned deep learning through the Fast AI course and got super into that. Oh, okay, okay. At uh, Plenty of Fish, uh, was this also the first time there where you transitioned from the computer vision domain into the Rexus domain and then directly yeah. starting right off with the reciprocal uh, recommender systems, which are a bit more special than, as you said, the standard setting? Yeah, my, my world for recommenders was reciprocal. I mean, it, it, for a very long time and, and unique market recommenders, which are different from, you know, like there is only one person, um, mm -hmm. like, you know, one person that you can end up with in the online dating space and that's sort of when i went to realtor it was a similar situation you know it's it's yeah there's only yeah. one family that can buy that house or person that can buy that house right or that apartment or whatever and that you know that that journey of getting to that unique you know properties of of the house and understanding how how and and where and when and why you're going to make that purchasing decision within the market and how to surface you know that trajectory or that journey it was It's a very interesting space to be in and to look at. Okay, I see. So this was somehow the consistency when you transitioned from Plenty of Fish to Realtor, the uniqueness of the, let's call them items, even though they were persons yeah. in the former case. Yeah. <laughs> Quite interesting. So I guess that was also, as I said, Realtor, where you gave the presentation about your approaches at Realtor. But I guess sometimes the consequences of buying a house or dating a new person are quite different. But if they go right, you know, like the 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 house purchase is is the biggest financial decision most people make in their lives, right? Mm -hmm. And the the online dating, like when you really do find that right partner, it's like it's the biggest social decision you make in your life. So it's like they're yeah, very similar point. problems in that way, right? <laughs> it's you know. Yeah. Okay. I see. So and then at Realtor, I guess for how long did you stay with them? I was at Realtor for three years, and and sort of. I guess towards the end, I was doing a lot of work in tabular deep learning specifically, like mm -hmm. not necessarily in the Rexus space, but just in, in, in tabular relative to you know, tree-based models and other solutions. And my um, 
my current boss, Nico, had seen a tweet. Uh, you know, I just kind of got on onto Twitter through the the Rexus community at Rexus, <laughs> and somebody kind of tweeted about my talk and and had shared that with him, and and he had some questions, and we ended up having kind of a back and forth messaging on Twitter at the time, um, and then you know four or five months later, maybe not even that, maybe two or three months later, a posting came up that he he'd sort of shared. They were looking for somebody at NVIDIA to tackle tabular deep learning. Mm-hmm. And that was the starting point. And I joined NVIDIA to do, you know, basically there's there's a software suite called Rapids, which is, you know, the Python data science ecosystem on GPU. So you can do data frame operations. You can do, you know, accelerated um, everything, everything the, the sort of in the Python ecosystem. Um, and it's an amazing product. And, and what we looked at doing was like, joining that to the framework. So figuring out how to make that work in in TensorFlow and PyTorch. So that means that Rapids AI together with QDF and, and QPy, they were already there, but there was no yeah. Rexus framework at that time. And it was somehow like, hey, even you have done Rexus, uh, you have a good track record as a team lead. So please build that up, build your team and go for it. Was it like that? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it, it's it started out as this like, wow, this is a big market that you know, in, as Nvidia, we haven't really traditionally served, and and the solutions that we have in the space. Like, if you look at even today, how TensorFlow performs on recommender system workflows out of the box, is there's there's real issues, um, and those stem from historical reasons a little bit, and you know, some of that's on the hardware side, and there's been big improvements there. So we've gone from, you know, like when I first started digging into the deep learning side, 11 gigs was a big GPU for memory, right? You know, mm-hmm. and, and now we're looking at the DGX or the like the A100 cards have 80 gigs of memory. Um, and more more than that, like memory bandwidth is actually super important. So if you look at the structure of a recommender system, like the embeddings are the core part of it, that they're, they're yeah. not making yeah. unique, right? And so really like being able to look up that memory efficiently is is the most important aspect of, of that training process. and really like the a100 cards have roughly 10 times the memory bandwidth of, a, of the most performance cpu you can find mm-hmm. right so suddenly you can get to these you know these crazy fast performance measures on the hardware but the software wasn't keeping up because it was designed from an era of computer vision right and, okay. and with computer okay. vision you've got these big images these big vectors and you're feeding those in you know and and passing that through the model and the model is what makes up most of the weights you're not like Mm -hmm. those memory lookups are not a a constraint and the io is not a constraint and and one of the first things i did when i was at nvidia was like looking at how the data loaders were performing on recommender data like a rexus data it's a single line in a data frame it's you know it's an interaction point with user features and item features right yeah so it's very very small from a you know like relative to an image and you want to batch and collate a bunch of those together as best you can. And so we worked on on techniques for doing that that really make a difference in performance. And that was my kind of my first work was it's now we call it the MV tabular data loader. We're probably renaming it in the next mm-hmm. sort of section into Merlin has become the overarching umbrella that NVIDIA talks about Rexus as. Because I see there are uh, quite a lot of terms that are circulating around this. I just yeah. found Merlin, <laughs> then there's Triton, there's NV tabular, and then you have uh, something else. So uh, maybe we'll bring them some order into that. So I, I got so far that Merlin is rather the overarching and it's also called the Merlin team, I guess. Yeah. 
taking just a step back. So it's really interesting, though, how the dots connect backwards if you look, look back. And I've, just to think about why we, why we go through your maybe past 10 years a bit fast, I have to think about that speech that Steve Jobs once gave where he said, okay, it uh, totally makes sense if you look backwards, but not if you look forwards. Yeah. So yeah. you have been <laughs> embarking on deep learning with your work in, in fast AI. You have been joining... Um, the Rexus field at Plenty of Fish. And what was really the time where you said, hey, um, I should combine them. I should apply deep learning to recommender systems. Yeah, that came. So I left Plenty of Fish and started on the deep learning side of things and got really into the deep learning. And I wasn't sure when I left Plenty of Fish if I really wanted to go back into data science because a lot of the work, like data science can split into two directions, the, you know, the machine learning side and the the sort of more the analytics side. Mm -hmm. um, and I found towards the end of my work, my work time at Plenty of Fish, I was doing more analytics and it wasn't kind of what I was as interested in. Um, and so I was looking at data engineering roles and this and that, and then I stumbled across fast AI and, and you know, I'd, I'd taken the time off. And so I, I you know, I'd had a, a, a young kid and I was spending time, you know, with them and, and then really digging into the course in a serious way. Like I was doing it full time essentially. And that really let me go deep into the, the recommender systems. I guess the recommender systems part, you know, there's a very brief, brief section of neural collaborative filtering that, that gets covered. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. I, I went into that. And then when I started looking at roles, real, the realtor.com role, I kind of went into that explicitly from the like, hey, I know recommender systems and deep learning. I mean, really, I didn't know anything like you know, it took okay. several years to get even further up to speed you know and, and i still like it's there's so much in the space and in the field that it's, it's yeah. really hard to to maintain everything so so referring to that example that you just mentioned so neural collaborative filtering where there has been quite some controversy around there are three different i would say maybe maybe scenarios of data that you're basically using so on the one side you have that interaction data where you just basically try to factorize the matrix of users and items and then of course you you go beyond it and try to exploit your metadata i guess like you have uh, quite successfully done with your feature engineering or the rexus competitions we will come to later and the third part is really when it comes to leveraging unstructured data like photos or some tech i, I always have to think about that very illustrative blog post by Sander Dielemann from Spotify back in 2013, where he was referring to the smell spectrograms that he kind of created as, as fingerprints for music and then was applying deep learning to it, coming up with new clusters. So that was very funny. Where did you find that deep learning is really contributing here and making a difference? Was it really on pure interactional or transactional data like this user item interactions? Or was it when it came to the tabular or even the unstructured data there at Realtor? At Realtor, it was, you know, it was a discovery process. Um, features are key to, you know, to, because the items are so unique and you can't like, you can't build up a history of the item in the market when it mm -hmm. is on the market for 10 or 15 days. So similar to a lot of other, you know, a lot of other marketplaces, you really have to use the, the user and item features. So we were using user and item features and, and building embeddings from that. Um, you know, and, and, and we use things like denoising autoencoders to build up a vector representation and, and, and other elements. And I think one of the, you know, one of the key things that I still am working towards actually, you know, in the, the new work that we're doing at, in Merlin is splitting those models up. Like, how do you get to the point where, you know, you can run these systems in production? And I think like mm -hmm. the key difference and the key challenge I see in the Rexus space is, 
you know, the data sets that we have are not really representative of what's going on in production environments, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a big gap and challenge from the research community and, and from, you know, from the public perception. Like if you if you Google recommender systems, you're going to find matrix factorization based solutions 90% of the time. Movie lens based. Yeah, exactly. Um, and movie lens is a great data set and it's a good starting point, but it, it's like MNIST, right? Like yeah. you wouldn't build a modern computer vision system off of MNIST, right? So it's really and, and it, it just doesn't reflect what's going on in the major companies. And I think like working now at, at nvidia and you know like one of the beautiful things about being at nvidia is as as my my founder jensen says um you know it, it's the only ai company that works with every other ai company so you know we're, we're talking to everybody <laughs> that's a good way of putting it yeah it's and it's really fun to be in that position right it's you know but when you get into the upper end of things nearly everybody's using deep learning based models mm -hmm. it the data i think you know to get to that scale Once you hit that scale, then deep learning becomes, you know, the the dominant life form there, mm -hmm. <laughs> for for lack of a better term. It's um, when you say nearly everyone is using deep learning. So, how did you feel when that shock was going through the community in, in 2019, uh, where the Rexus was taking place in Copenhagen with paper? Are we really making much progress? A worrying analysis of recent neural recommendation approaches. It didn't shock me honestly because I think like. There's a recent paper um, by Hutter that covers, you know, how tabular deep learning actually, if you properly regularize, you can beat XGBoost and, and LGBM. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, like, there's there's back and forths in this domain. It's one of those funny things where, I think, on the data sets that are available to researchers, it's probably true that deep learning isn't necessarily the best solution, mm -hmm. right? And I think that even can include the Rexus challenges right like yeah you know the the rexus challenges that the, the team worked on this year and even last year and the year before it's it's a mixture of you know XGBoost and neural models right and, and generally the single best model is 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 an XGBoost model yeah when you've got a finite chunk of data like most companies in production with their deep learning models they're doing iterative training so they have this baseline model that has this contextual representation of years worth of data and they're updating that model on the next day's worth mm -hmm. right i mean there's dangers to that too in terms of like you know catastrophic forgetting and other issues there but yeah it tends to be you know there's like there's ways to train much much larger longer data sets using deep learning to build up context over time and to build up. And, and the other thing is, like you said, those representations of users and items, and like you can feed those into tree-based models, but it's not as effective or it's not as easy to do, I guess. I think deep learning is the future. It's, it's very hard right now, right, to do deep learning, but that's a big part of what my team's working on at, at Merlin is, you know, we're, we're trying to make recommender systems easier to build and make recommender systems easier to deploy into production. And that's, that's not just deep learning. So when it comes to that point, I found uh, the paper that you were co-authoring with Dietmar Janach and Gabriel Morera, actually the later one, I guess, is also one of your colleagues in 2020 that you presented along with the Rexus Challenge workshop about why are deep learning models not consistently winning recommender systems competitions yet? Was this somehow kind of a response to the paper in the previous year or what actually were the reasons you found out in that paper? Yeah, I mean, if you if you go through the paper, you find, you know, mostly we're asking questions rather than mm -hmm. giving answers, right? I don't think it is. I don't think there are clear answers per se. I think a lot of the paper was speculative. Um, and, 
you know, my part of that speculation and, and my biggest contribution there, um, you know, like Dimar and, and Gabriel did the vast majority of the work there on the paper um, and were gracious enough to make me an author because of the, the additional contributions that I made to it. But really, my my contributions and arguments came in the form of like digging into the that data set size and that data set sort of that like the gaps there, sort of conclusions that you would draw on different data sets. I'd like to figure out a systematic way to study that too. Mm-hmm. And to be able to say like, okay, here is the size at which deep learning makes sense. Here's the size at which, you know, the, these more, more traditional models yeah. make sense, yeah. right? And to be able to say like, in this context, this is a better method or, you know, in this situation or that, because I think it's not, I don't think you can say de facto that any one solution is going to fit the bill all the time. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess this is also what you mentioned as one of the three top categories of potential reasons that you're speculating about might also be the motivation of researchers. So I guess it's not bad if someone uh, tries deep learning, even though he or she might not outperform some existing heuristics or something like that. But I guess it's always nice for the field to explore more solutions towards a problem, because I guess by that you may also understand the problem a bit better. So because I remember that colleague that I have a constant uh, discussion about, and uh, I wouldn't say that he's against uh, deep learning or using deep learning for everything, but he is a big fan of mathematical modeling, which I guess has also a good reason uh, to use it. But sometimes it feels like deep learning gets turned down uh, just because you have these sometimes unsolid works or non-reproducible works, and then kind of deep learning uh, gets kind of reflected bad by by, by, by the stuff somehow. Deep learning is very hard to do correctly. <laughs> Good point, yeah. One of the things we tried to do in the Transformers for Rack paper when we were digging into that as an mm-hmm. example was, you know, first of all, to run it against non-deep learning baselines, right? Because I think that's a common mistake that a lot of people doing deep learning papers do is they compare against only deep learning. Yeah. But the other thing is, you know, when we ran that paper in, in the in the ablation studies that we were doing, we were doing 50 or 100 hyperparameter tuning stages, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, we do five at a time for, I believe it was for 10 or, or 20 times, you know, to really get to the point where the model performance is acceptable. And it's, it's like you can see these curves and, and, you know, and something that we're looking into and trying to figure out how to present this information is... How do you know when your model is tuned properly in terms of the hyperparameters, right? Mm-hmm. That's a big question, a big problem in the Rexa space, and it makes a huge difference in terms of model performance. Like you can see, you know, the, the relative performance gradually, you know, it, it can change over time. And the other thing is, like, if you're only measuring a single run, so, you know, you know like we were running multiple runs to, to get the, the mean and standard deviation of those final outputs, um, if you're only running a single run, it's it's like I it, I'm I'm very informed by a paper I did in my masters where we, we were doing this research into programmable logic, and one of the tasks in programmable logic is like scheduling. So how do you get the connections from all the pieces on the chip from one to another in the way that mm-hmm. they're supposed to go, right? There's all these different parameters that you can input into the FPGA for configurations to try and, you know, to try and provide the optimal solutions. And so what we were trying to study was like, well, what is the impact of each of these different components? And what I pushed on team and what we worked on, you know, and added to it was like just the random variable, the random seed that we stick in, 
you know, how much does that play a, an effect on the final outcome of the model, right? Because many times, you know, you're this is a lot of compute we're talking about. You're running these things over, you know, over hours or days. And so sometimes you're looking at a single run. And mm-hmm. it turns out that the like that random variable was one of the most significant contributing factors to the final performance of the model, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So if that's the case, right, like then it's pretty easy to, especially if you're looking for a solution and you're like you're looking amongst a bunch of hyperparameter options and saying like, oh wow, this solution here is like is the best I can get to, right? That's like if you're cherry picking your hyperparameters, then you know, and your random seed and, and getting to that final best solution, yeah. you know. Like that variability can be high in some instances, right? That's one reason not to use deep learning, frankly, is like it, it's hard to do right. Um, mm-hmm. But if you, again, like look at the biggest companies in the world doing recommender <laughs> systems, they're they're doing deep learning. And, and I can yeah. tell you they're not doing it because they want the added complexity and they want the extra engineering hassle and they want, the, you know, like they're, they're doing it because it's making them a lot of money. Right. Yeah. And you can see that in some like especially in the Asia Pacific region, there's been a bunch of great papers from Tencent and ByteDance and, and some of the other yeah. companies doing session based recommenders. And I'm thinking about a similar thing when you are bringing up that uh, they are doing deep learning and they don't don't just do it for fun or to attract the best people, but they are doing it for profit because it has yeah. some advantage, at least at the stakes when they are that high. Um, I remember just a discussion that that we had yesterday where we are kind of internally presenting our insights from this year's Rexis. And we were talking about that counterfactual learning and off policy evaluation settings, uh, where it was also actually said, you need lots and lots of data there. And the best thing to make is have everything locked that you can, and then maybe you can get to that point. But even there, the investment is that high. But once you are there and are really, for example, able to, for example, uh, predict your A-B test results based on on locks in an unbiased fashion, then this is really a huge benefit. But of course, uh, it doesn't come for free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a very complex space. I mean, recommender systems are, in my mind, the most complex machine learning problem out there. I'm part of an org that also does, you know, self-driving cars. And I think that's a very challenging problem. But mm-hmm. Like the context of driving a car hasn't changed in you know a decade or two, right? So mm-hmm. the problem is very clear and defined. The context of like what I want to watch when I turn on Netflix at night, that can change dramatically. Like you're literally trying to model a human's preference. And you, you know, the number of confounding variables in that <laughs> is like astronomical, right? And now you're trying to do that across a whole set of people. And yeah, it's like yeah. it bo- kind of boggles my mind that we can do anything beyond like popularity but it's great that we can and i think that there's been a lot of great you know work and solutions and i mean the, the great thing about deep learning based is that it really lets you model individuals and and try and build up representations there and i think yeah the other part that we haven't don't have any papers on this but i gave a talk about this recently um my friend uh carl higley is on the team and i, I would highly recommend um i think he'd be a great sort of person for this podcast as well because he okay <laughs> well definitely looks like up You know, he, he talks a lot on, on Twitter about recommender systems and, and has a really you know interesting view and vision on on the space. And I'm lucky enough to have him on the team. So he had this concept of a four-stage recommender system. And I think recommender systems, like when we say, you know, I'm building a recommender system or here's the recommender system, generally we're talking about the model, like the ranking model. Mm-hmm. That's like an engine, but not a car, 
right? Like it's a part of a broader system. And I think we've, we've kind of done a disservice in naming that a recommender system because it's really a recommender model. And it gets us in trouble in terms of like people joining the community and coming in and understanding, you know, like most people who haven't worked on a production system have no idea about the other stages, you know, mm-hmm. you, like mm-hmm. the idea of having to do retrieval and then or candidate generation and then, you know, do some filtering on that based on business logic rules and then do some ranking and then do some reordering because the ranking is not the final you know solution in terms of what you output to the user. Yeah. You know, we're, we're trying to build systems within the Merlin team now that allow for that kind of system to, you know, to be deployed and applied to, you know, to smaller business problems. And like most companies in the Rex's space already have all of those pieces. And so they're interested in the ranking, but there's a lot of companies out there that are trying to figure out Rexus and, and a lot of people trying to figure out Rexus and they, you know, those other parts are kind of black boxes or, or, or even boxes you don't even know that exist. That's an interesting differentiation you make there. So really think about uh, model and system are not the same, the same things. So you have a great model. If you did your matrix factorization on some user item matrix, now you have your embeddings that are part of the model, but systems adds components to to that model like what is the feedback mechanism and uh, what are the feedback loops and do i model them uh, and how do i show it context and all that stuff that that's an interesting point you are bringing up there You already mentioned it a couple of times and I want to definitely talk about the work that you are doing currently at NVIDIA that is really amazing, the uh, challenges that you are rocking. So from the challenges you see for the, for the field and your um, current setting at NVIDIA, how are you addressing them and and what challenges would you would you say you, you, you successfully addressed and you made people or researchers or practitioners life easier and where do you think this is still something that is on your roadmap or that want you that something that you want to solve yeah no i mean I, there's a lot on our roadmap and a lot that we want to solve we're really trying to tackle the entirety of the rexus space because i think nobody really has right there's a lot of homegrown solutions to each different stage and you know, very little cohesion within the space. And what that means is there's this really high cost when you move roles, there's a really high cost trying to bring people into the field. It's kind of in the space where computer vision was when I was doing my PhD, right? It was like, you need a PhD. Well, you don't need a PhD to do Rexus work right now, but you need to invest roughly an equivalent amount of time to understand the space to be able to contribute, right? You know, so you need a couple of years in the field to really understand what's going on. And what we're trying to do in, at NVIDIA and at Merlin is basically to make recommender systems easier to build. So the modeling side of it. But but when I say recommender systems, I really do mean that whole system. So like mm-hmm. the, the retrieval models, the filtering, the, the ordering, you know, all of those other components. And then making that easy to deploy into production. I think there's often this sort of gap at, at NVIDIA. We call it the Bermuda Triangle of like, <laughs> You've got this great model that the data scientists have done an offline evaluation and everything looks good. And now they're kind of handing that off to some other team. And a lot of models go out to die in that way, right? It just doesn't ever make it to production. I guess there is this great picture of data scientists sitting on the one side of the fence, throwing their models over the fence, and then please data engineers just bring that into production. But I, yeah. I guess that's changing with especially the involvement of machine learning engineers. It definitely is. And I think as a community, we're building 
building better practices there. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, there's still a lot of complexity in that space. And so like one of the focuses early on, you know, with the tooling we built with like MV Tabular as an example. So MV Tabular is a feature engineering and pre-processing library for machine learning. Mm -hmm. Rex is specifically, but it's generally applicable to tabular data. And, you know, and it does things like, you know, you can specify it. I want to categorify all of my categorical variables and you just give it the list of, of columns or you give it you know a tag of, of all the, the the categorical columns and it'll go through and it'll calculate you know the the dictionary translation for that list or you know I want to normalize all my continuous variables so it'll compute the mean and the standard deviation and it'll 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 do all that pre-processing for you one of the things it saves so it, it saves a couple things in, in in the process it saves a schema that represents that data so you know okay these are the the ranges within the embeddings and these are the values for the normalization so you can apply that again it saves the workflow as well of like these are the things that i did to the data and that workflow is transferable to a production environment so you can mm -hmm. take that workflow and apply it at production at inference time and be able to transform the data in the same way and that like that process sort of stemmed from a challenge i ran into a real where like we would always have issues of like okay here's the transforms we did on the data but now we got to get those, those transforms into a production mm -hmm. version or environment that's very hard to like to reproduce and if anything was wrong in terms of you know the math that was used or the, the ordering of the data or anything else suddenly you know what's going into the model is different from you know what was what it was trained on and, and the output yeah. is garbage so to some certain degree, your pre-processing is already part of your model. So this is what you kind of persist because you also fit some certain degrees of your pre-processing. Is that the case? That's one way of thinking about it. Yeah, it's thinking about how the pre-processing is going to work in inference. And I think that's like, that's one of the main things that we think about is like, okay, how are these things going to be, like there's an offline calculation of like, how do we prepare these things? And then there's the online implications of like, how do these things work in production? And one of the things that you know that that you talked about our roadmap that I would like to get to is like there's there's a lot of variables or things that you calculate from a statistics perspective over the data set that are changing in the live data. And you may want to actually have you know some computation being done to figure out, okay, now that I've got this streaming data coming in, how do I use that streaming data to update the statistics to make it more mm -hmm you know, more real time in that context. Because I think, you know, the, the iterative updating of models is something we'd really like to to get to. Um, you know, so there's the feature engineering stage, the, you know, the, the modeling stage, the candidate generation stages, all of these pieces we're trying to figure out. And then and then there's ways that those can be put together, right? Like there's different configurations of how a Rexus model gets built up. So we're, we're working our way up from like, okay, now we have feature engineering and ranking and inference for those two stages. How do we get retrieval into that picture? How do we get filtering into that picture? And then how do we provide a couple of configurations that are pretty common? Like here's an offline batch configuration that just lets you like run and generate, you know, the, the recommendations for the user offline and store that in a Redis database for, you know, for an inference API to look up, right? Mm -hmm. And you just sort of, that's one kind of configuration of the system. Here's a, here's a live configuration of the system where, you know, you can generate or those recommendations in real time. Right. Here's one that's keeping the statistics up to date, you know, and here's here's one that deals with sessions in a way that's like caching the sessions and, and computing. So we like we're, we're looking at, you know, all these different spaces or all these different parts of the Rexus space and trying to figure out, like, how do we provide solutions and also thinking about which companies and which people when they're getting involved in this, like they may be much further down the Rexus journey in terms of like, 
They've got a very small data set of you know users and items and a couple interactions and maybe some features and just trying to find a way to make that journey of like, okay, you've got a small, simple problem and then you've got some success and it's growing mm-hmm. and you've got some more success and it's growing, like making those transitions easier. So what would you recommend? So let's say these are smaller companies that have, as you said, their first successes with applying recommender systems to their business problem. And now they are thinking about how can we advance? How can we go further? What would you really recommend them to to get started with? Because um, you have touched a bit on NVTabular. Uh, I actually also tried it out. um, And I would be interested in which parts of that whole ecosystem that you are currently building are part or were used as part of your solutions for the challenges Um, because I guess there is also a huge CTR. What is the point where you will tell someone hey this is what you should use now or could use now and here is how you start with it? Yeah no those are all good questions so we're I mean we're we're trying to figure some of that out ourselves in terms of the transition points. For the competitions, those were done in conjunction with the KGMON team at NVIDIA. So it's like Jensen founded, or, or when he created the team, he, it was, he was thinking of Pokemon and like catching them all. <laughs> so, he, so he's got, he's got his, his KGMON grandmasters all packaged up in their little KGMON balls to, like, to throw out in, at these, these super complex problems. <laughs> so we're super lucky to be a part of that, you know, that process mm-hmm. and work with with those teams you know they're incredible i mean brilliant i think many of them at one point have been number one on kaggle and you know they're they're, they're really really incredible data scientists and engineers and so working with them to like to inform and, and and integrate some of those solutions back into the product like you know like one of the good examples of that is jiba uh, was one of the the kg out of brazil he developed this technique for for target encoding that mm-hmm. you know, that, that basically you know allows you to get a, a prediction of the the likelihood of a click you know based on a bunch of different extra techniques that really actually make this work so We've built that and baked that into you know, NVTabular, and now you can do target encoding with a single, you know, single line of code on a bunch mm-hmm. of different columns, right? In terms of places to start, I think like understanding where the time is taking in your pipeline and getting like to me, the most important thing is getting a flywheel going where you're getting models into production quickly. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. you know, getting to the point where you're iterating quickly. So it, it you need to kind of think about all the different stages and figure out where your pain points are and your gaps are. Like it's, it's okay to have the you know breaks in those flywheels because you can't have like it's very rare to have one person who understands the whole piece. But you need to have a team that's thinking about about that sort of end to end process of like okay I've got this idea, I'm going to iterate on that idea, I'm going to generate new features, I'm going to generate new models like. It doesn't matter if the data scientist or the person working on the models is iterating you know, quickly and coming up with great new models if it takes three months to get that model into production, right? Because right, yeah. it's just going to be this, this deep like debt of trying to get anything pushed live, right? So figuring out those pain points, understanding and getting to the point where you have this straightforward mechanism for putting things into production, for really getting this sort of the solution deployed, tested, you know, and once the pipeline's there, then, you know, it's great to start iterating and applying these tools. And the nice thing about the tools is like some of the tools we're developing are designed to make that pipeline easier. And some of them are designed to make it, make that flywheel spin faster, right? Like mm-hmm. the data loaders that we've built for TensorFlow and PyTorch, they're roughly 10 times faster than for training. 
you know, and the feature engineering on GPU is roughly 10 times faster than on CPU for kind of for equivalent cost. Might this also be one counter argument for using GPUs in smaller companies could be, yeah, but they're mm. costing a lot of money and renting an A100 is about $3 per hour and something like that. It's just for you to play around with it and got accustomed to that. What would you tell those people? <laughs> Yeah, no, that, that's a perfectly valid argument. So NVTabular supports CPU and GPU. Mm -hmm. The deep learning frameworks all support CPU and GPU. Triton Inference Server supports CPU and GPU. Like NVIDIA is a is not just a GPU company anymore. We're a data center company, right? We're thinking mm -hmm. about this holistically now. And so if the right solution is to run on CPU, you know, for a small scale, that's fine. That makes sense. If you have a reasonable volume of performance, though, like as like a you get to the point very quickly where GPUs actually are very cost effective, mm -hmm. right? You know, there's advantages to having your model updated more frequently. So if you're training, you know, if you're training on CPU is taking you 10 hours and you can bump it down to, you know, 45 minutes on GPU, that means your model can be up to date that much more frequently. Yeah. That's going to translate into, you know, more than the $3 that that A100 is going to cost you, right? Like, if your business isn't making that $3 back, then you're, <laughs> you, you've got other problems. Um, but, Good point. You know, you know, people focus on the cost of GPUs often. And I think, like, the real thing that's missing is this awareness of the amount of time. And I think especially that time of that cycle for the, the people developing the models, right? If it takes, even if it's an hour to go through the feature engineering pre-processing stages and then go through the modeling and, you know, and there's gaps and breaks and challenges and you got to iterate, like the number of iterations you can do if, if your process takes an hour per day is like probably five, right? Like you go for lunch, you go for coffee, you got a couple meetings, you could probably run five iterations of that model during mm -hmm. the day where you mm -hmm. can try new features and do other things, right? If you can shorten that from you know an hour to five minutes, you can probably go through a hundred iterations in the day and get really into the flow of like, oh, I'm trying this thing and oh that that sort of worked, but this didn't. And then you know, like you get in that flow state where you're really working yeah, deeply yeah. within that, you know, that, that iteration cycle. That's where the magic happens. The only downside is you don't have time for coffee anymore, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've seen the rapids <laughs> diagrams. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Yeah, okay. Of course, it makes sense. Yeah, I guess you also always have to see the full picture of time that you're saving. But I guess it's not only about the feature engineering or the model training. Sometimes it's also about the setup. Um, what are you doing actually there to make it easier for people to tap into the field? Um, I guess you are doing many tutorials and looking ahead yeah. that there will be someone around the GTC. But what else is there that I could get easily started with? Yeah, so we try and make examples available on our repo to make it super straightforward, you know, and, and provide containers that you can just pick up and run. The biggest challenge a lot of companies or a lot of people face is just getting the dependencies all working together. And I, I admit <laughs> that's a very complex thing, you know, like, mm -hmm. you know, what we're building is at the center of Rapids, which is a big sort of complex ecosystem that has a lot of dependencies, the deep learning frameworks, and those are a big ecosystem with a lot of dependencies that often clashes with Rapids. And those, you know, they're actually working right now on how to make those two ecosystems cohesive so that, you know, mm -hmm. we can build off of that existing container, but making things more straightforward in terms of, you know, dependencies. Once you've got your dependencies sorted out, like most people find the, the solutions we've built fairly easy to use. Mm -hmm. We've tried to make the API super straightforward, really thinking about like, how do we make this, you know, I, FastAI was very informative to me or formative to me rather in the sense that like the work 
that was being done by you know Jeremy and Rachel and trying to get the APIs concise and clear and the right abstraction, you know, and iterating over and over again. We've done similar things with our libraries, right? And we're still iterating on all of them. Um, but, you know, we're trying to figure out ways to make the APIs more straightforward and simple, we're trying to make development more straightforward and simple. Lots of examples, like we try and include lots of example notebooks that show how to do things in different ways. And that's something, you know, there's a couple of members of the team that that's their full-time role is, is creating examples and working with customers to help understand. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's always a challenge to try and get up to speed on a new technology, but we've tried to make it as painless as possible. I would say, you know, from an ease of use perspective, MV Tabular is probably a good starting point. It provides data loaders for TensorFlow and PyTorch and makes it simple. It provides uh, feature engineering pre-processing in a really straightforward way. Um, and, and we're working on some cool new features that you know that we'll be releasing at, at GTC that I you know I, I'll be sharing in my talk then, which I'm super excited about. Um, that are going to take it take, like take that ease of use even further. Um, mm -hmm. And then like some of the more complex stuff that the team does, like the huge CTR focus, is much more on like how to scale GPUs to you know multi-node distributed systems, and 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 so it's it's more complex. It's you know it's like low-level yeah. C plus plus. It's it's got to be super performant. It's really thinking about those like milliseconds when it comes to latency. It's really, you know, it's greater complexity, but it's targeted towards a different audience, right? It's not meant for the people just getting into Rexus mm -hmm. so much as the, the people who are at the, the peak of Rexus. Who want to really scale stuff and build on large scale recommender systems. Cool, interesting stuff. I will definitely put uh, all the reference links to GitHub and to the blog posts that you already wrote in that domain in the show notes that people can look that up. Really great, great stuff you are doing there. And uh, again, uh, congrats to you and your team uh, for that amazing performance uh, with that more real-world related challenges around on, around Rexus. I also worked a bit on the Twitter challenge myself. Uh, didn't find that much time, but at least scored 11th and was actually working also with NVTabular a bit. So um, it was interesting to nice. see and looking forward to what the progress is there when I'm pulling up a container next time. Yeah, just for the end, um, I have three surprise questions for you. One, uh, you just crossed off my list because this was actually the person that I was asking you to provide me that you want to have or see in this show. So can you name? Yeah, Carl Higley is a lovely man and, and very, very smart. You know, in, in the recommender system space, he's full of ideas. Yeah, um, maybe I already read something from him. If you're on Twitter in the Rexus space, then I should have yeah. seen his work. <laughs> Maybe is there some kind of a wish that you have for the for the Rexus field uh, or some kind of appeal to the research and practitioner community? Ooh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, there's a couple of wishes. One is like better data sets. I think that's really hard to mm -hmm. do, but we really, you know, we need companies to offer up better data sets to be able to make significant progress in the field, I think is. Okay. With the Twitter data sets, is it already going into the right direction? It, it is, but even even there, it's like it's a long way off from what Twitter is using in production, is my guess. Mm -hmm. And the amount of data and the, the scale and, and the, the methodologies, they're all like it's hard because it's very hard for a company to, you know, to give away that level of data and that volume of data. And so I, I don't know the solution to this in terms of, of how to resolve it. But it, that's probably my number one wish would be. And then the other is like trying to make the field more accessible to newcomers. Yeah. And that's sort of we're pushing and working really hard. 
Yeah, definitely. I agree. Maybe last but not least, what is actually your, your favorite recommender product in the large space of recommender Ooh. products? <laughs> Which recommendations do you really enjoy? That's a tough one. Um, I guess, you know, from a daily use perspective, I would have to say Spotify. <laughs> I listen to their music and it's definitely, you know, you can you can see the uh, the degree to which the recommendations are, are, are applied. I really, yeah, I appreciate the music. If the team's listening or happens to hear this, the one feature I want you to add is vocals in music, vocal um, samples. Um, as a feature because I like to listen to music while I work and vocals distracts me. So I, I want music <laughs> recommended without vocals and I'm trying to get the, like the, the funny thing is, you know, knowing how recommenders work, you actually interact with them a little bit differently, right? Mm -hmm. So I know how to give active signals to a, to a recommender <laughs> system to try to influence <laughs> it in the way I want, right? And, and, and that plays out in a couple of ways, right? Like YouTube is another one that I, that I use and enjoy and, and partly why it works so well is I have very distinct boxes of like, here's my personal YouTube and here's mm -hmm. my professional YouTube and the professional you know it, it provides like oh, yeah. better recommendations when i keep it professional but okay that's interesting so you keep really different accounts to access youtube then to make sure that you have the right recommendations at the right place <laughs> yeah exactly exactly cool even thank you so much for thank you joining much, in my second episode it was really a pleasure to talk to you and uh, i hope we will also see each other again in person maybe in seattle next year at rexis yeah very much hoping so should not be too far for you <laughs> yeah No, I'm excited. Just takes a train. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Nice. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Rexperts, Recommender Systems Experts, the podcast that brings you the experts in recommender systems. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe to it on your favorite podcast player and please share it with anybody you think might benefit from it. Please also leave a review on Podchaser And last but not least, if you have questions, a recommendation for an interesting expert you want to have in my show, or any other suggestions, drop me a message on Twitter or send me an email to marcel at rexperts.com. Thank you again for listening and sharing, and make sure not to miss the next episode, because people who listen to this also listen to the next episode. See you, goodbye. Thank you.